God's word this morning, 1 John 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin or sinning that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our hearts to you and ask for your instruction. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight and beneficial to your people. We pray especially for your spirit to make your word effective and true, piercing and healing. Oh God, be with us now. Amen. Learning to ride a bike is uh, one of those momentous events in your life. Uh, it's where your view of the world has changed completely. Now, I'm a cyclist, so some of you are thinking, come on, Robbins, uh, that's a little bit overplayed, isn't it? Uh, but what I mean is this. Uh, when you come to learn how to balance on a bike, uh, you have learned a completely new way of movement. Uh, you know, the idea of moving without your feet on the ground, on solid ground, is totally foreign. It's totally strange until you learn uh, the ways bikes work. But once you've felt that stability, uh, the way it holds you up in its momentum... Uh, the way that uh, once you have ventured yourself onto that metal frame with the two wheels, uh, your view of the world is forever changed. You are forever changed. Uh, once you learn how to ride a bike, you never entirely forget. One of the crucial things in learning how to ride a bike is this feel, right? The faith and the balance of the bike, uh, actually venturing yourself out on it and understanding how it can whip you along as it goes fast enough. But that's just the first step. Uh, we taught our sons, or our eldest, how to ride a bike with a thing called a balance bike. You may have seen them. They're, it's just a frame, two wheels, and a low seat so they can put their feet on the ground and they kind of get the, the feeling of how to balance without necessarily having to work on all the technique. Well, uh, once Elijah got the feel for this, uh, this was back in St. Louis, uh, that was just kind of the first step, right? You have the balance, great. But the riding of it, the navigating, that's the real test. So I brought him out into the alleyway, which uh, kind of had a somewhat of an incline, very mild, and I'd set him up at the top and then run 20 feet in front of him, like, all right, Elijah, come on, come to me. And as long as he was looking straight at me, he just flew to me flawlessly, always like, you know, doing little tricks along the way even, but flawlessly coming to me without uh, hindrance. But after he started doing that for a while, he started noticing the quality of our St. Louis alleyway uh, with various debris and garbage and dumpsters and potholes, and he started swerving all over the place even had some nasty crashes. Once Elijah stopped looking forward to me and stopped venturing out as boldly, he started wobbling. 
They started getting uh, swerving, started crashing. His balance was shoddy because he stopped looking ahead to me. You know, riding a bike is an act of faith. A simple one, thankfully, but it is an act of faith. And this is how it is for us as well. Uh, We have come to faith, and yet our faith uh, goes through strong patches and weak patches. And in fact, you can't live long in the Christian life without your faith being undermined, challenged, uh, deeply challenged often, uh, simply with this life. As one brother put it this week, uh, his cup was overflowing, overflowing with difficulty. Our faith is undermined when we lose sight of who God is and what he has done. You know, it's one of the peculiarities of being a human that when we read passages that are meant to assure us and build us up in the faith, that we actually walk away uh, doubting and more worried. Uh, This is what happened when I read 1 John the first time, uh, all the way through, and I I walked away feeling, okay, so... (laughs) If you're born of God, you don't keep on sinning. What does that mean if I continue to struggle uh, for years with the same thing? Uh, and there are some passages that need explanation like that. For instance, in this case, you know, John is talking about the fruits of the Spirit eventually dominating your life. Not that you're going to stop sinning. He's very clear that we will keep sinning and keep having to confess our sin. But that's only part of the picture. In reality, our assurance is undermined in all sorts of ways. Our faith is troubled. And when that happens, it's terrifying. What I want to show you this morning in God's Word is that it's not only perfectly normal for your faith to be disturbed, but that the Lord knows your trouble and addresses Himself to it. The Lord knows. The Lord knows what troubles you, and He speaks to us this morning. John wrote this letter to a group whose assurance was totally undermined. He wrote this letter to tell them that, in fact, verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So I'm going to do this in four moves. Why our assurance is undermined, uh, how we get assurance, what we are assured of, the content of our assurance, and then also a few concluding notes on what in the world we're supposed to do with this. Uh, I'll go through the first two fairly quickly, and then we'll kind of dwell on the latter half. So why assurance? Why do we need to be told this? Our faith is undermined by a number of things. And you can, uh, if, you, if you have the note sheet, you can fill this in as you need. Uh, there's a number of things. There's voices within, and there's also voices without. Within, we have our own sin, our distance from the Lord. Uh, we wonder in the face of our sin whether we really do know the Lord. Along with that, though, we also have the taunts of the devil. Uh, whispering, accusing. Accusing us, telling us that uh, the Lord could never forgive sin that bad. And if he does forgive sin, then it's certainly not ours. And if the Lord does love people, then he certainly doesn't love us. And those whispers never go away entirely. And along with that, we also have our own incompetence, our own shame. Uh, There's no one here in this room who doesn't have some area of incompetence. And there's never a day where uh, you're never totally uh, faced with that. Hopefully not all of us are faced with that all day long. But that feeling of shame uh, actually confronts us to the point where we begin to wonder if the Lord will shame us at the last day too, like our peers and our colleagues do. You know, part of this is just the reality of being a Christian, uh, just living in this world. Uh, John Calvin uh, is a favorite author of mine. He had a lot of foibles and a lot of mistakes as well. But 
Uh, he was this wonderful, bright mind. He was a scholar first who turned into a minister back in the 1500s. Uh, he was a stud in a lot of ways, kind of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. But what's awesome about him is that he's not just simply bright and wonderful. He's also warm and devoted. But he's also realistic about the faith. He's also realistic about what the Christian life is. This wavering faith was clearly something that he struggled with. Here's a quote. Therefore the godly heart feels in itself a division because it's partly imbued with sweetness from its recognition of the divine goodness. Partly grieves in bitterness from an awareness of its calamity. Partly rests upon the promise of the gospel. Partly trembles at the evidence of its own iniquity. Partly rejoices at the expectation of life. Partly shudders at death. This variation arises from the imperfection of faith, since in the course of this present life it never goes so well with us that we are wholly cured of the disease of unbelief and entirely filled and possessed with faith. Hence arise those conflicts. When unbelief, which reposes in the remains of the flesh, simply in being human, rises up to attack the faith that has been inwardly conceived. His point is simply this, struggling with assurance of faith with our sin, with the taunts of the devil, simply with the reality itself and all the suffering suffering it brings is just part of normal Christian experience. If this is you this morning, you're not alone, either in this room or historically. But there's also voices outside of us. Uh, There's tumult and divisions in the church. Uh, Actually, John is writing to a group who uh, was left in this church who had been left by a group. Uh, This church had been split, and the group that had left them, it seems, had uh, kind of veered from historic Christianity. It seems like they denied that Jesus came in the flesh, that he died, that Jesus paid for our sins, or that God judges sin at all. And they said to the church that they left, because you believe those things, you don't actually know God. You need to be taught again. You need to be instructed By us, we're enlightened. (laughs) So it seems uh, they thought themselves to be innovators, one commentator suggests, and that they had moved beyond what the old Christianity was, what apostolic Christianity was, and they found the new, real, true life. And everyone who has left, you know, you guys are just, you're outdated. The church was shaken as they wondered, are the apostles missing some of the picture? Are we missing something? Are we being closed-minded fundies by only listening to John and the scriptures? You know, imagining this is not hard because we have our own critics. We have our own voices who critique us. Uh, There are many voices today. Uh, Bart Ehrman is one. There's many others. You you don't have to look hard. Uh, Who say that the way the New Testament was put together, for instance, and you can find other areas, uh, that the way the New Testament was put together was an act of oppression. That the priests in the 4th century who compiled the New Testament, they were saying that these are the books that teach what we teach. And we know there's other books out there, but those other books contradict what what we say, and therefore they're a threat to our power. This is what Bart Ehrman and others say. They talk about the Gospel of Judas, or the Gospel of Thomas, Nag Hammadi document. There's 101 other documents out there that Bart Ehrman says, you know, this is real Christianity, uh, and the only reason why we don't have it is because of some sort of power play by priests who were threatened by this in the 300s. He says, there never has been a faith, a set of beliefs, that Christians have always held. 
he argues that orthodoxy is bogus. It's a farce created to make us swallow a pill, like in the Matrix. He would say that our belief in the Scriptures as God's unique word is naive at best and political deception at worst. Does this sound familiar? The solution is not to ignore these things. But it is to take seriously who God made us and the apostolic testimony we find in the scriptures. And that brings us to the second thing. Where is our assurance? Where is our assurance? Our faith is assured by God himself and apostolic testimony. Our faith is assured by God and apostolic testimony. You know, these other documents which uh, Airman and others awful, offer as examples of alternative orthodoxy, uh, they're actually, they're just bogus. And I'll, I'll tell you why, and I won't go into this in too much detail, though I'm happy to talk about it more. You know, uh, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, any of these, uh, were not brought into the New Testament, not because uh, these people didn't think they were Christians who wrote these things, and not because uh, they didn't exist. They're bogus because from very early on, the apostles, John, had clear authority over the church, over the church, excuse me, and clearly taught the true beliefs and corrected those who twisted beliefs. You know, Paul does this all the time, as do James and Jude and Peter. Early on, very, very early, you have Paul correcting people and saying, you know, I praise God that you have held to the standard of teaching that you were committed to. The faith. We don't accept these other documents as scripture because the apostles did not write them and because they contradicted what the apostles did teach. This is no secret plot. This is no political maneuvering, whatever certain novelists would fabricate. This is defending the promise and the revelation of God. This is the defense of the scriptures. You know, and that's actually what John is doing here. He's correcting uh, this enlightened group. John, who knew Jesus personally and deeply, who was actually put in place as an apostle by Jesus himself, is writing to this church and saying, listen, what these people are saying is not what Jesus has said. It's not what the Old Testament scriptures say, and it's not what Jesus has said, and they are leading you astray. He's saying, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. That's 2.24 from this book. You know, if you notice a slightly more historic flair in the liturgy this uh, week, it's my fault. Uh, partly what we're after as a body is the practice and the communion of historic Christianity. You know, we're going to confess the Nicene Creed here in a little bit. Uh, that's because we are part of apostolic Christianity. We can point back to the scriptures and say this is what the apostles taught and this is what Jesus taught the apostles. We have this word as truth. There is a set of teachings, a set of doctrines, which the apostles themselves taught, which we still hold to, and we have not made it up. It's God's revelation. Secondly, our assurance is in God himself. And I just want to say three things here, and I'll move quickly. Uh, first is that God is no deceiver. He is no liar. 
He is light and truth, and he's gracious and just. But secondly, he doesn't just speak, he also acts. He's not only spoken truth, he's also acted to make us his people. Uh, None of us invented this. Uh, For most of us, we did not want to be a part of this, but God laid hold of us and brought us in. God acted in his son, in his son Jesus on the cross. And then lastly, he speaks to us clearly and truly by his spirit. You know, we can trust that we are his, and we can trust that his word is true because his spirit cries out in our hearts. Abba, Father, Romans 8:15. We are assured we are his, not because we've never sinned or we're perfect, but because the spirit is changing us. We can trust we are his because we have the spirit, and the spirit is truth. You know, if your faith is struggling this morning, uh, this is the place to dwell. Uh, looking full in the face of God. Our faith is strengthened by coming together in worship, but in particular by being in God's presence. I put this quote in the front of your bulletin from uh, Calvin again. Sorry. Uh, I just like him too much. When first even the least drop of faith is instilled in our minds, we begin to contemplate God's face, peaceful and calm and gracious toward us. We see him afar off, but so clearly as to know that we are not at all deceived. Then the more we advance, as we ought to continually advance with steady progress, as it were, the nearer and thus surer sight of him we obtain. And by the very continuance he is made even more familiar to us. It's by looking forward to the Lord himself that we have assurance. Our assurance of faith is in the Lord himself not in anything we offer. Well, if we have this assurance that the Lord has uh, spoken truthfully through his prophets, his apostles, and most of all in his Son, and if we have the Lord himself who's given himself to us, as we give ourselves back to him, we see his face more, well, then what are we assured of? What are we assured of? John, the apostle, assures us that we are in the one true God that we are in the one true God, and therefore that we have eternal life. You know, briefly, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, uh, we're frankly just really glad to have you here. Uh, But I'd welcome you to come and discuss any of this with me. Challenge me, it's fine. Challenge any of us. Uh, We want to engage you. But uh, I just want to encourage you to take this time and and realize that this is kind of like truth in advertising, right? Right? This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what's true about being the people of God. Uh, Listen, think about it, and you might actually find yourself wanting this. So a number of things that we are assured of. Verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. Uh, John is convinced that these believers are not deceived. They do know the true God. They have not made anything up. They know the one true God who hides himself in holiness and yet has revealed himself to us. And we need to take this stamp of apostolic approval to heart. When we read the scriptures and we hear the Lord's voice in them and we see Jesus as the eternal Son of God who came and took on human flesh as our Savior, we are not deceived or overly imaginative. We're not simply looking for a crutch. No, no, no. We really do know the Lord, the maker in heaven and earth. We are in the true one. 
Not because we figured it out, but because he spoke. We have not contrived this, but he has spoken to us. Secondly, we see that in verse 19 that we are from God and born of him. And it says, uh, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John's saying two things here. He says, first, that our identity is wrapped up in who God is. Uh, being born from someone, and this is how families work, uh, being born from someone, you inherit all sorts of things, good and bad, histories, dispositions, enjoyments, but, but essentially identity. And you can't choose who you're born from. And John is saying, listen, uh, you were born of God. God actually went out of his way to give you new life. And what this means for you this morning is two things. Uh, he has given us new life. Unstained, indestructible, unending new life. But secondly, uh, that no one can change that or take that away. We're assured of that. No one can change who your parents are. No one can change the fact that you were renewed and born of God. This is your unaltered identity. This is who you are. But secondly, our exile. He also gives us this assurance that though ever around us, it seems like uh, we are on the losing side. Uh, that the, the criticisms, the voices are so loud. And yet he says, we belong to the one who has overcome. We are in exile, Peter says. But more than that, we are God's co-conspirators behind enemy lines. Uh, we are his agents, his ambassadors, his witnesses. Even though we are in a world that is uh, darkened. And I don't have to convince you that it is dark. We are subverting the evil powers that the evil one is using to oppress and crush people. We are a people of hope. And we are a people of deeds of love because God has borne us from above. Not despite the evil world, but because of our joy in belonging to God. Verse 18, we also know that we are born of God, and so we know that our sin will not go on forever. He says, uh, whoever is born of God does not sin. Literally, that's how it reads. Does not sin. Uh, that's the challenging one for most of us. And the ESV does a good job here. It says, does not keep on sinning, in verse 18. That gets the idea of it. John is talking about what characterizes you. He says, if you're born of God, you are not characterized. You are not dominated. You are not known by your sin. The point is that as you come to know God on a deeper and deeper level, those sins which are grown deep into our personalities and our histories, uh, those things themselves are uprooted. You know, when we moved into our house <coughs> uh, that we're renting over here, there was uh, the backyard was kind of in disarray, and I managed to mangle all the bushes as well, uh, which is not helpful. Uh, but there was a laurel bush, <coughs> and it was interesting. Right in the middle of it, there was an oak that had, that had grown up. It was a really thin little oak trunk, a little spire, that kind of punched and wound its way up through the thick laurel bushes. So it was the oak was probably about seven feet high, but it was a single trunk. Well, What's going to happen eventually is that oak is going to end up pushing out that laurel bush simply because it's stronger, it's deeper, it's more powerful. And that's the image we have of the Christian's holiness. It's like a great oak or a dug fir. Once it's planted, it's taking over. It will uproot anything else in that soil. It will snuff out any other 
bushes or weeds. And Lord knows we do have other things growing in our hearts. As you see God and know his love more and more, those deep-rooted sins will be pushed out. I didn't say as you read more and more theology or become more and more educated. That's a common error, especially in our circles. That's a deadly error often. No, it's actually as we see and trust the love God has for us on a deeper and deeper level. As the love of God comes to be your identity more and more and as you embrace and abide in that love, as it roots down deeper into who you are, it snuffs out those sins that are pernicious and persistent. Sin only flourishes in our lives as long as we believe at a deep level that God is not faithful, not loving, and not least of all to us. Sin only flourishes when we don't rest in God's love. Uh, I have another Calvin quote there on the front of the bulletin, uh, which gets at this, and he basically says this. uh, It is a lifelong battle, not simply to confess your faith, but to have it in your heart, what you confess with your mouth, to have it truly in your heart, this confession, that God is faithful and faithful to me. That is a lifelong battle, that his love comes down even to me. The promise we have is that as we abide in his love, he will choke out all of our sins. He will change us. But more than that, we also are assured that the one who was born of God, Jesus, keeps, protects, holds us. Now you see this in verse 18 again. You know, some of you are tormented this morning by your conscience. Uh, Your guilt will not let you go especially the thought that the Lord might have let you go. But John's word to you this morning is that no matter how persistent, how grievous your sin is, how horrible, and no matter how much the evil one raises a dust around us and tries to snatch us up like a hungry wolf, the Lord is our protector. He has set himself to protect us. He says in John's gospel that we are in his hand and no one can snatch us out of his hand, out of the Father's hand. Our hand may let go and waver, but his hand is stronger. His hand is stronger. Uh, Some of you have hypersensitive consciences, like myself at times, and you'll be thinking, well, what if I didn't actually listen to the Lord? What if I never really truly believed? But I just want to assure you, you know, if you're thinking that, uh, it's more likely that that you've already listened to the Lord and you're you're just a little too worried. You need to rest in the fact that you're probably not characterized by stubbornness and hard-headedness if you're worried about uh, your sins. But you do need to rest, however, in the Lord's kindness. Uh, No matter how you're doing this morning, the center of your assurance is that Jesus keeps you safe. Not all the other stuff we do. So, the center of our assurance is the Lord's word, the Lord himself, and he's assured us that we are his. He will change us, and he protects us. What in the world are we supposed to do with this? And that's the fourth thing. If we have this assurance, if we have this assurance, we should be bold in prayer and faithful to what we've been taught. Verses 14 and 15, uh, John says that we have this confidence toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
and, he know, and we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. Uh, John basically is saying, listen, if we are born of God, if we are his children, then we have every reason to expect that the Lord listens. Every reason to expect that the Lord is eager and attentive to us. And in fact, we see in verse 16 that God even uses our prayers to restore people to life. He says, if anyone sees a brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Uh, your prayers are not only uh, heard and eagerly attended to by the Lord, but they're also effective. They're effective. And this is our confidence. Not that he does whatever he wants, whatever we want him to do, and he uh, does whatever we say, but that he always hears us. And you'll notice that I haven't really dealt with verse 16 and 17 yet. Um, I am going to. But uh, part of the reason why I've not dealt with these two difficult verses is because uh, I, I see them as kind of a, a digression from John's main point. Uh, his main point is to assure us. It's to say, this is who you are in Christ. We know, we know, we know that we are in the Son of God. And he says it multiple times. 16 and 17 is saying, okay, if we have this kind of boldness before the Lord, if we know that he listens to us always, then what should we pray for? What should we pray for? So the sin unto death. He says uh, there is a sin that leads unto death or a sinning, a type of sinning that leads to death. And I don't say that one should pray for it. So what in the world is he talking about? Uh, we know that John doesn't think that it's an issue for true believers. He does not think that this, is, this type of sinning is an issue for true believers. In fact, he says that he knows that you have eternal life. That's why he's writing. So this is sinning, this sin unto death. This is a sinning, this is a way of sinning, which exposes an underlying character, not a specific sin. Not a specific sin of some kind or another. In the case of the church that John is writing to, he's likely envisioning those who have stubbornly refused God's word and stubbornly refused the communion of God's people. And he's saying, actually, that stubbornness, that unwillingness to relent, that unwillingness to listen is what is at issue. You know, their doctrinal uh, innovation was evidence of a deeper issue. One commentator says, to sin unto death is to have a heart unchanged by God's love in Christ. And so to persist in conviction and acts and commitments like those John and his readers know to exist among ostensibly Christian people of their acquaintance. It's not some one sin, but, but what sin demonstrates to be lying under the surface. The hard, packed, Resolute refusal to listen to God's word. It's often demonstrated by heinous acts, perversity, murder, wicked deception. It doesn't have to be. So, uh, how can we tell who these people are? Well, the first thing to say is that John doesn't give us any idea. <laughs> That's not why he's writing. He's not saying, so don't pray for these people. And here's how you figure out who has this kind of hard-baked heart, this callousness. Here's, how, here's the criteria. He doesn't give us any criteria, actually, at all. Uh, an older commentator says, John cannot give a clear marker to indicate, in every case, whether someone's lapse 
is unto death or unforgivable, or whether God's pardon may still extend to him. Because no person can furnish that. We don't know what's in someone's heart. We are in no place to judge. We can hardly judge our own hearts. In fact, all that John gives us is a warning. All wrongdoing is sin. We know we are all sinners. John is saying, listen, be careful, if anything, that your heart is actually soft towards the Lord first. But he's also not telling us that we can't pray for these people. He's not forbidding us. He's just saying we don't need to feel compelled. We're not compelled to pray, not because we feel ourselves better or even because we know what's in their soul, but, and I would suggest for two reasons, uh, because uh, their sin is so grievous or possibly even personally painful uh, that we just can't be expected to take up their case before the Lord. Uh, My wife and I had a dear friend in uh, St. Louis who uh, wrecked his marriage, uh, did heinous things, Uh, to many people, not to mention his own children. And I I will be honest, it is very hard for me to pray for him with any sort of compassion. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I'm saying that uh, it seems that John is saying, it's just maybe not my job then, if it's that painful. We can leave them with the Lord, because the Lord is gracious. On the practical side of things, we also may be wasting our energy, because in fact this person will forever refuse the Lord's love, and further bury themselves in their hatefulness. But at the end of the day, we just don't know. We just don't know. So, should you pray or not? Uh, You know, this is an issue of judgment. Uh, And John's actually not telling us to not pray. He's just saying, I'm just not making comment on that. Uh, This is an issue of judgment, of charitable, kind, patient judgment. You know, if we're going to err on anything, I would say err on praying. Please pray. Please pray for God's enemies. Jesus prayed for those who persecuted him. He says, pray for your persecutors. You know, if the Lord had not had people praying for me, I never would have been rescued out of my darkness. So please pray. But, as one commentator says, just as John's nuanced counsel gives readers leave to pray, he's saying you can pray. It also left them free to cease their prayers when the time arrived. I realize this is difficult. I'm not saying this is an easy passage. Please feel free to come and talk to me about this more. Well, if we have this confidence before the Lord, that whatever request he hears, then we can look full in the face of God's great love and his tender kindness to us. We have every reason to expect him to welcome us in prayer. You know, one of the errors we make is we think of prayer as communication, first of all. Um, I need to tell God this so I can do that, or I need to kind of get back on track. Uh, But actually, prayer is first communion. First, it's communion with the Lord, and then it's communication. You know, we doubt he hears us, partly because we doubt he actually loves us. Some of us think of God as an immature middle school girl, and nothing against middle school girls in general. Uh, There are wonderful ones. Uh, But... You know, uh, I didn't call you last week, and so now we're not friends anymore, and my new best friend is so-and-so. And And there's this spitefulness, right? Uh, 
Uh, you don't call them, and so they won't return your calls anymore, and so on. But we need to actually think of it more like this. Uh, prayer is like going on a date with your wife after you've been missing her for a long time. The longer it goes, the more you want to be with them. Uh, the longer you go from being with the Lord, uh, go to him sooner. Don't avoid him. You know, we often feel like we have to get things straight before we can go to the Lord. That's just such a deception. Uh, you can't get things straight until you go to, to be with him. How much more bold and persistent ought we to be in prayer? How much more can we rejoice in him as we pray with him? But lastly, if we have this assurance of God's love, we ought to be faithful to what we've been taught. And we see this in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Uh, it's a strange little enigmatic statement, especially because John never says anything about idols anywhere else in this book. Uh, but I, I, I want to say that I think this refers to uh, heresy broadly, but more likely uh, falling away from the Lord, refusing the Lord. Heresy, uh, because of the way it matches up with idolatry. If idolatry is the worship of new gods that we've made, new gods we've made to fit our own needs, that never challenge our power or our control, that give us comfort on our own terms, that accept us because we made them, then heresy is saying that I can make up the true biblical God in my own image. I can say whatever I want about him, to make him more like myself, to please my passing desires, my appetites. Heresy is not just doctrine. It's who we believe God is. John is telling us that, in fact, we have no need unmet in Jesus himself, and so we have no need to make up anything else. <laughs> we can cling to him all that much more. We can cling to what the scriptures say and stand in them with boldness because there is nothing lacking because there's nothing lacking. What we need is to be faithful to what we've been taught in the scriptures so that we can cling to the true God himself. You know, for some of you this morning, that means that you need to read the scriptures in the first place. Uh, I remember reading my Bible for the first time and thinking, why didn't we ever talk about this? This is amazing. <laughs> uh, you never will know the Lord, or at least your devotion will be passing and wavering and fickle, if you're not feeding on him regularly, if you don't have a diet of God's presence. But for some of you, this means that you need to actually just keep on, keep on clinging on to the Lord, clinging on to the scriptures in the midst of the climate you live in. Uh, it may be that you hear the, the voices and your religion class, for instance, if you're at college, uh, of the Bart Ehrmans or even the more subtle philosophical arguments. And there are solutions to those things. There are good arguments against those things. But first and foremost, you need to cling to the Lord himself as the truth, the Lord himself as your guarantor, the one who guarantees his word. You should also come and talk to me so we can talk about it. It might also be that you're bombarded by the culture you move in, that you live in, uh, the pressure to succeed to perform, the temptation to take, grab, steal that success, that sexual pleasure, that bit of comfort. You know, John's word to you this morning is, uh, is to cling to the one true God. Uh, 